This is Unfiltered, episode 266 for January 25th, 2018. What this is all about is further evidence of corruption, more than bias, but corruption at the highest levels of the FBI and that secret society. We have have an informant that's talking about a group that were holding secret meetings off-site. There's so much smoke here, there's so much suspicion. Let's let's stop there. A secret society, secret meetings off-site of the Justice Department. Correct. And you have an informant saying that yes is there anything more about that Welcome to Unfilter, episode 266 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's trying to help you avoid watching all of that news that'll rot your brain. My name is Chris, and because of a schedule shenanigans this week, it's just me. Mr. Chase is off, working on a big, cool project at work. He sends his regrets, and you know what else? It's his birthday. If you're on the Twitter, why don't you tweet at Nunes and wish him a happy birthday? It was just a couple days ago. This is our We Share the Birthday Week, so it's always a fun episode, but never fear. Even though Chase couldn't make it, hell of a show for you today on the Unfiltered program. We will start off, as we always do, with our cyber segment, just to warm up. Turns out North Korea has been launching new cyber attacks against a victim you may never have considered. We'll recap what happened with that whole shutdown showdown. What a political show that was. And then, yeah, as the intro suggested, there is... A hell of a twist in the Russia investigation this week. Secret memos that are alleging abuse of surveillance powers, plus text messages that have been deleted and lost and then found that apparently talk about an insurance policy against Donald Trump becoming president and things that may indicate that that Fusion GPS dossier played a huge role inside the FBI. Lots to talk about there. Then we'll do just a quick Russia update and end it all on a high note. And if you've got time, we have an overtime that'll have even more information about some of these things that we go into today. So lots of stuff for 266. And let's start right now with that North Korea attack. You'll never guess who North Korea is going after now. At Kim Jong, he is a 4D chess player. Transit agency Metrolink says it was the victim of a cyber attack earlier this month. Yeah, that's right. The Canadian Metrolink was attacked. And it says that cyber attack originated in North Korea. Now, Metrolinx operates Go Transit. That is one of this country's busiest commuter systems. An agency spokesperson said that no personal information was compromised and that transit operations were not affected. That said, we do want to talk about this. So now you see North Korea with their extremely advanced um, cyber division um, that, uh, as you know, uh, from birth, they are separated from a culture of, of uh, backwards anti-technology uh, and they are brought up in a unique area where they are contained and they are uh, exposed to modern day computer concepts, uh, programming languages. Of course, they've got iPhones and Android devices there. They have Windows 10 systems, really nice systems. They have complex server systems that they learn and train against. Uh, and, and it's all just in these secret places. That's all a bunch. I just made all that up. But that's the only thing that could explain how North Korea is such I, – I said this a couple of weeks ago on the show. I said I don't understand how North Korea can have such elite hackers because you don't just get people that are extremely good at computers out of a culture that doesn't 
have computers in their life. It comes from being around technology and having something to tinker with. If you don't have something to tinker with as you're coming into your own, it's not going to be your natural strength. So then how do you become – are they importing them from Russia? Maybe they bought them from Putin. That's got to be what it is. That, maybe we just need some more research. Welcome back to 7 News at 6. Researchers at Clemson University are working on a project that could someday keep key infrastructure that we depend on safe from a certain type of cyber attack. Ah, good. Well, this will solve the problem. It has to do with vulnerabilities in GPS and timekeeping. Clemson's project has the backing of a $1 million grant. And today we visited the team to hear more about this groundbreaking work and why it's so important to each and every one of us. Time, its accurate synchronization, is a key part of virtually every critical service from power to mobile phones to computer networks. If we cannot provide accurate time, then the consequence will be catastrophic. Dr. Yongchang Wang at Clemson University is leading research on how to prevent hackers from manipulating time on our digital networks and devices. I got this off Amazon. So. Graduate student Maz Ahmed explains right now that type of cyber attack is possible with a device like this $300 software-defined radio. So once this is deployed in an open environment, the signal coming from here is much stronger than the signal coming from outer space, from satellites. Yeah, that's a good point. That is actually... And these software-defined radios are so cool. So it would always lock onto the stronger signal and completely overshadow the authentic signals. Why is that alarming? For one, it can roll back time to gain digital access through old login information. Head southwest on south. Two, an attack like that could mess with your GPS, making your phone think you're in one spot when you're really miles away. GPS, after all, is based on satellite signals that are all linked to, you guessed it, time. <laughs> I rely on GPS all the time. How, how in the world would anybody else get around? And think of the consequences for ships at sea or trains in cities that depend on accurate location coordination. Wong is quick to point out the U.S. military has its own secret code to verify GPS signals. His research is aimed at helping private industry, like our electric grid. Yeah, that's what I was going to point out, too. They are pretty vulnerable. So we want to come up with some solutions to make sure that the time you get is, is reliable. It's, ta- it's about time somebody's closely monitoring the time. Uh, if only there is enough time before we run out of time. Let's move on to the shutdown because I have way too many clips on this this week. And <laughs> You know we got to talk about this. Well, let's roll back the clock, speaking of time, and let's go to right before the big shutdown. These developments are happening so quickly. Senate leaders are in fierce negotiations with the White House, trying to break the stalemate. This is five hours, 28 minutes and 14 seconds before the shutdown, because now all networks have shutdown counters. Now just hours before the government is set to shut down. President Trump earlier this afternoon summoning Democratic leader Chuck Schumer down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. We had a long and detailed meeting. We discussed all of the major outstanding issues. We made some progress, but we still have a good number of disagreements. The discussions will continue. Both sides scrambling for a last-minute compromise, with just hours to go until the government was set to close at midnight. Senator, any progress? Hopefully. Mr. Speaker, are you going to leave town with the government potentially shutting down? Last night, House Republicans passed a bill to keep the government open for three more weeks. Earlier this morning, threatening to leave town without waiting to see what happened in the Senate. So you guys are getting out of town even though the government is shutting down? We did our duty, so why why would we wait around 
What are we doing? Man, somebody needs to give that guy some training. <laughs> what an idiot. But quickly reversing course, advising members to stick around as negotiations kept going. Senator Lindsey Graham still working with Democrat Dick Durbin to try and find a compromise to help the so-called dreamers. This is Durbin. It did connect. But Senate leaders facing off. Yeah, Lindsey Graham has a flip phone. Did you see that? He has a, uh, was that a Moto Razor? Let's go back and look at that really quick. No, not a Moto Razor, but it is a flip phone. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's for security. I wonder if that's their trick. You can't get caught with emails if you can't email on your phone. <laughs> but Senate leaders facing off. Republicans accusing Democrats of hurting millions of kids who rely on the Children's Health Insurance Program, which would be extended under the spending bill. Democrats accusing Republicans of abandoning hundreds of thousands of dreamers facing deportation starting in March. All right. So that's it. Five hours, 26 minutes and 49 seconds outside of the shutdown. And as it gets close, the overnight legend Don Lemon is watching the clock. But I think it's important to let this play out. Here we go. There are 10 seconds left officially till the top of the hour until there is an official government shutdown. Your lawmakers now are still working to try to come up with something. But. Obviously, that will be too late. So here's the breaking news. It is midnight. No deal. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. A shutdown of the federal government is now beginning. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is horrible. This is the... So what does happen when you shut down the federal government? Here's what actually happens during a government shutdown. The entire federal government is split into two categories, essential and non-essential operations, or by the new PC terms, accepted and non-accepted. Accepted services include really big stuff like the military, the FBI, and Social Security. Non-accepted is stuff like national parks, museums, but also initial public offerings and drug approvals. Typically, when there's a shutdown, all that non-accepted stuff grinds to a halt. So for the average American, that means no visits to the Grand Canyon unless you sneak in, no panda cam at the National Zoo, and maybe more importantly, it could hold up your mortgage or loan applications. But here's where things get tricky. No two shutdowns look exactly alike. Some last less than a day, the longest ran for three weeks, and who and what grinds to a halt is always different. There are some statutory requirements about what stays open and what doesn't. You might recall when Obama's government shut down, they went really far to make sure you couldn't go in the parks. They even they even put up security fences. But the law leaves a lot of room for discretion. The Office of Management and Budget lets every department come up with its own plan. So there are no official phases to a shutdown. But the longer it goes on, the worse it gets and the more you feel it. Just take international travel. Passport services aren't totally dependent on Congress for cash since part of the funding comes from fees. But that doesn't last long. So after a few days, you may have trouble getting a passport or visa. Or let's say a shutdown coincides with tax season. Uncle Sam will still collect, but expect to wait for any refund coming your way. Oh, isn't that funny how that works? <laughs> you know, as soon as the government shut down, lawmakers and uh, politicians got right to the hard work of blaming each other. This is the one year anniversary of my presidency and the Democrats wanted to give me a nice present. So that's Donald Trump tweeting. He didn't really get too involved, but that was one of his beauties. Let me talk about some of the buildup to all of this. There were really two key issues that the Democrats and the Republicans were fighting over in the lead up to this bill and to the budget, why they couldn't get a budget passed in the first place. For the Democrats, mm. that issue is 
undocumented immigrants, specifically those DACA recipients. They wanted some deportation protection for about 700,000 of those dreamers brought to the United States. As Another way to put that is they were attempting to tie that deal to uh, the government funding deal, which was never really going to fly. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate in a way that they tried that because they had to, they had to eventually – they had to cave. And uh, that, of course, wasn't until – that wasn't, of course, until a few back and forth from different outlets. It got a little murky. People started saying a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah, Graham was all over the place. They tried to pin it all on Chuck Schumer, calling it the Schumer shutdown. And then Schumer tried to pin it on Trump, calling it the Trump shutdown. And, and Lindsey Graham saying it's not Trump's fault. No, no, no. It's all Trump's staff, though. The White House staff, I think, is making it very difficult. Uh, I enjoy working with them, but – let me give you two uh, examples of the problem. There was a handout uh, given to the bipartisan group last Tuesday where the president did a masterful job on television masterful. for 55 minutes regarding border security. It was a very detailed uh, border security plan that I could support in phase two but not phase one. The president looked at it and said, who did this? You know, this is way too much. I didn't approve this. Then we also heard the president say that the eight, $18 billion request for border security was too much. I could do it for less, and I think you can. So what does the White House staff do a couple of days later? They pitch a proposal for $33 billion. So that's just not credible. I've talked with the president. His heart is right on this issue. I think he's got a good understanding of what will sell. And every time we have a proposal, it is only yanked back by staff members. So it's not Trump's fault. It's White House staff members' fault. That's what it is, you see. That's what it is. So uh, call it what it is. It's, it's a Schumer shutdown, and the details are being held up by White House staff, not Trump saying he wants one thing and then changing his mind. And it was a White House – by the way, the White House was out calling this the Schumer shutdown before the shutdown even happened. <laughs> this the is, Schumer shutdown, um, it still surprises me. This is 12 hours, 45 minutes, and two seconds before the government was shut down. And I've been through some of these before, um, that the Democrats in the Senate are opposed a bill that they don't oppose. Um, they're for clean CRs. Uh, they're for the, the extension to the CHIP program. Many of them support the delay in some of the taxes, most specifically the medical device tax, the Cadillac tax especially. Um, they don't oppose anything in the bill, uh, but they are opposing um, the bill. This is why I think the White House knew they had a strong position and why Trump didn't have to come out that hard. The Democrats were always going to lose when they went into this. And Schumer tried to play hard. He tried to, he tried to be tough, at least for the weekend. Americans know why the dysfunction is occurring. A dysfunctional president. Hence, we are in a Trump shutdown. Oh. And party leaders who won't act without him. It has created the chaos and the gridlock we find ourselves in today. Mm, okay, so you see it's the Trump shutdown, not the Schumer shutdown. No, no. No, no, of course not. Uh, and once the weekend had wrapped up, because the shutdown really just went over the weekend, kind of coincidence that, uh, they moved to th move things back into the order. The voting is still happening on the <laughs> Senate floor, but we can report this. Uh, the government will reopen. The vote is still open. I have to remind everybody of that. But they are right now pushing 80 yeses. And, of course, they needed 60 to break the filibuster. As we continue to watch this vote play out, your thoughts. The government will reopen. This is two days, 12 hours and 44 minutes after the shutdown. So once the week ends up, 
the call goes out, essentially. Hey, come in and vote. Obviously, having over 60 votes well, now, over 60 pushing votes 80. Means the word went out. It's, it's time for everyone to vote yes. I mean, this will be one of those 90 to something votes uh, where you've got, <laughs> we've probably got Rand Paul and, and Mike, Mike Lee. Lee and Ted Cruz <laughs> voting against it. God bless them. <laughs> He's got it right there. Um, and so the uh, the word goes out. They come in. They vote. Schumer blinks. And the shutdown. It's over. Sort of. For now. The Senate is about to pass a spending bill to end the three-day government shutdown. The legislation goes next to the House, and then the president will sign it. Leaders on both sides finally reached a deal to end the stalemate earlier. It's only temporary, though. It's a short-term measure to fund the government through February 8th. Yeah. Um, that's pretty soon. That's so that's one thing to remember uh, is that we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, there could be more of the shenanigans in just a few days. Down. The legislation goes next to the House and then the president will sign it. Leaders on both sides finally reached a deal to end the stalemate earlier. It's only temporary, though. It's a short term measure to fund the government through February 8th. Was that like 13 days from this episode um, being recorded? Uh, yikes. Democrats ended up caving, but that's not how Minority Leader Chuck Schumer sees it. The reason the Republican majority had such difficulty finding consensus is they could never get a firm grip on what the president of their party wanted to do. These days, you never know who to deal with when it comes to the Republicans. President Trump turned away from not one, but two bipartisan compromises. Each would have averted this shutdown. President Trump's unwillingness to compromise caused the Trump shutdown and brought us to this moment. Now, the thing is, is the, the, the way Schumer's going at him like this, it's going to basically screw the pooch on any future cooperation between those two guys. Trump doesn't get over this stuff very easily. And he already prefers if you grovel a little bit. And when you're just giving him shit constantly, trying to call it the Trump shutdown, that's probably going to make future negotiations pretty tough. And, and that kind of sucks for everybody. But the Democrats do kind of – they come out looking like, like losers on this. And that's not me saying that. I mean I am saying that. But it's also like, you know, Joe Scarborough. So what, what was the president – the president's part in this way forward and what is the way forward? Well, it sounds like his part was to get out of the way. Most everybody said the reason they were able to get a deal at the end – was the president and uh, Stephen Miller, who's obviously running the president's business, uh, were kept out of the way. And so the two sides could come together. Listen, there are a lot of Democrats that aren't happy. There are a lot of reasons for Democratic activists to be concerned. It doesn't seem that the Democrats have still learned how to fight a good uh, political battle, a good yeah. political war legislatively uh, or, or with their communications. Yeah. But... You know, this ended up just being a phony war. This was to borrow a phrase from the beginning of World War II. This was a phony war. It was a three-day uh, battle. It's not like uh, they signed off for uh, a six-year deal uh, on, uh, on keeping the government open. Mitch McConnell has given his word. Mitch McConnell keeps his word or else. The Democrats can do this again in February, mm. and that's going to be up to them. I just hope for their sake that if they do this again in February, they will have actually planned the next move. 
I mean, it's one thing to shut down a government, but if you're going to shut down the government, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know what your communication strategy is, and you've got to know what your next move is. That's what. Yep. Mm, and that's what they didn't do. <laughs> you know, it's just what it is. Uh, it was it was it was a total shit show. I didn't even really bother. Uh, I wasn't really even going to bother talking about it. Other than now that they – the reason why I decided to cover it in the show this week is because they kicked the can uh, down the road like 14 days. So it could – that could end up being the big showdown where it really becomes a thing. And so we've got to know – we've got to have – we had to have that context going into it. So I did decide to cover it. But even going into it is like this is going to be over by the time the weekend's over. It, it was – you could smell it a mile away. Now, you saw our intro clip about an alleged secret society and secret text memos. There has been a huge twist in the Russia investigation. Who knows how far any of this is going to go, but the allegations are big. So let's start with the secret memo. That's a separate issue than the text messages. And um, the secret memo is (laughs) – well, if Chase was here, he'd tell you it's been giving him a lot of grief this week. Absolutely shocking. That's how a group of U.S. Republican congressmen reacted after seeing a new top-secret intelligence document. They believe it details the abuse of surveillance powers under the Obama administration. I had that same shock feeling. I was like, wait a minute, this actually happened from our Justice Department and this FBI. That's how serious this is. There has been a real attempt to undermine this president. That is the type of information that we need all Americans to see immediately. The American people deserve, they must, They want to know what's in this document. Sadly, much of the mainstream media will not be covering this today. But in this house, on this day, let us know that indeed we are still one nation under God and willing to protect life. Now, if this memo truly exists, uh, Devin Nunes could release it similar to how Dianne Feinstein released the Fusion GPS testimony recently. Donald Trump also has the authority to declassify it. Um, but today the Justice Department issued a statement saying it would be extremely ha- um, careless – oh, no, reckless was the word. It would be extremely reckless if uh, Devin Nunes released the memo. So this this memo is this big like hype piece right now. And of course everybody's favorite friend, Sheriff Woody, uh, Adam Schiff, went out and said, oh, it's all overblown. Tons of the memo are redacted. This is no big deal. This is just to uh, undermine the Russia investigation. And it just it would it just lacks total credibility when it comes to Adam Schiff because he's always he's always playing the same political game that Devin Nunes is, and so it is something to watch. But right now, I don't have high hopes for the contents of this memo. And if it ever does get released, it'll be so redacted it'll be worthless, and then we'll just get insinuations in the news. Now let's shift gears and talk about those text messages. You remember those FBI agents we talked about that are having an affair that were involved with Hillary Clinton's investigation around her emails. There was a batch that was released. I think it was like initially 400 text messages. Well, it turns out there's way more text messages and way more incendiary things in there than we initially knew. The FBI's handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation is increasingly looking corrupt. Hate to say that, but that's where the evidence is showing us. Newly released text messages sent between agents Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were dating one another, suggested the Bureau felt, quote, pressure to wrap up that investigation and exonerate Hillary Clinton even before they had interviewed her. We could learn more, but the FBI says it has lost thousands of messages, text messages sent between Strzok and Page. 
Republican Senator Ron Johnson represents Wisconsin. He chairs the Homeland Security Committee. He's one of the reasons we know any of this in the first place, and he joins us tonight. Senator, thanks for coming on. No, Tucker. So you remember, of course, when the Attorney General Loretta Lynch said that she would accept whatever the FBI's recommendation was in the Hillary Clinton uh, investigation. Now it looks from these texts that she'd already decided to exonerate Hillary Clinton. Well, the fix was in. Well, she already knew that Comey was going to recommend exoneration. So how is that? I mean, that strikes me as the definition of corruption. Am I missing something? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, what's making a lot of news is the, the five months of missing text messages, yes. which we'll continue to... to uh, investigate ourselves. But, I mean, the fact that Loretta Lynch knew before she made the big announcement that, oh, you know, because of potential conflict of interest meeting Bill Clinton, I'm going to let James Comey decide that, you know, combined with all the editing of that memo that was starting, that was, you know, the production of that thing began two months before they actually interviewed Secretary Clinton. Uh, that's a little bit of a problem. Now, let's talk more about these text messages. So these messages reveal uh, quite a few things. Uh, it's sort of surprising <laughs> what they were just brazenly talking about. Here's some examples. Well, these texts are incredibly important, Martha, for a number of reasons, uh, both what's there and what's not there. So lay aside this glaring five-month gap in texts that the world's premier law enforcement agency somehow missed. Lay that aside. What we have seen, what Johnny and I saw today, was a text about not keeping text. Uh-oh, that's bad. That shows intentional obstruction of justice right there. Oh, man. We saw more manifest bias against President Trump all the way through the election into the transition. And I saw an interesting text that Director Comey was going to update the president of the United States about an investigation. I don't know if it was a Hillary Clinton investigation, because remember, that had been reopened in the fall of 2016, or whether it was the Trump investigation. I just find it interesting that the head of the FBI was going to update the president of the United States, who at that point would have been President Obama. Yeah, and uh, Comey, they play the clip there in a moment. Comey uh, says he didn't update Obama, but then the records show that he did, and there's text messages discussing it. But that's not even the most fascinating thing. That's sort of the mild thing. The most fascinating thing in these text messages, and I shit you not, there is talk about, A, an insurance policy against Trump becoming president, and B, a secret society. Um, the uh, issue of bias that Chairman Gowdy mentioned before, we knew that Strzok and Page had an intense anti-Trump bias. Uh, and that's okay so long as they check it at the door right. and do their job. But we learned today in, in the thousands of text messages that we reviewed that perhaps they may not have done that. There's certainly a factual basis to question whether or not they acted on that bias. We, you're, we know about this insurance policy that was referenced in trying to prevent uh, Donald Trump from becoming president. We learned today about information that after, in the immediate aftermath of his election, that there may have been a secret society of folks within the Department of Justice and the FBI to include Page and Strzok that would be working against him. I'm not saying that actually happened, but when folks speak in those terms, uh, they need to come forward to explain the context with which they use those terms. That's huge. So a secret society would seem to imply it's more than just these two people texting. It may be throughout the FBI, which means they'd likely still be working together even today to cover each other's asses. Um, boy, that when when I hear that, it reminds me of a quote from Hillary Clinton when she when she was walking out from uh, a town hall style debate, I believe it was with with Matt Lauer, 
and uh, she it, it had gone badly and she was very upset about it. And Donna Brazil was back there and she started yelling and said, if that man, Donald Trump, wins the White House, we're all going to hang from the same noose. And then there's talk of a secret society, which would sound like a group of people throughout the FBI that are collaborating together. Now, who knows? These aren't these aren't my words, though. I mean, they're the ones that are using the term secret society. And Martha, as an actual decent journalist, apparently, <laughs> asked the right follow up question. Those terms. Uh, Congressman Gowdy, do you want to expound on the secret society idea? Sure. I wish I could. I wish I'd been the one who either sent that text or received it. You have this insurance policy in the spring of 2016. And then the day after the election, the day after what they really, really didn't want to have happen, there's a text exchange between these two FBI agents, these two supposed to be objective, fact-centric FBI agents saying, perhaps this is the first meeting of the secret society. So, of course, I'm going to want to know what secret society are you talking about, because you're supposed to be investigating objectively the person who just won the Electoral College. So, yeah, I'm going to want to know. Yeah, that is – see, the the logic I would think to even be talking about this in public would be to put a lot of political pressure on the FBI to cooperate and the DOJ, too, to cooperate. You know, I think that's got to be part of it is they're just talking about this in the public to to just sort of turn up the heat a little bit. And uh, it it seems to be working. Uh, Supposedly, just out of nowhere, the FBI has recovered these text messages. The Department of Justice now says it has recovered those missing text messages sent by two FBI uh, officials under scrutiny for comments about the president and a so-called secret society over at the FBI. I want to bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. She's joining us right now. Jessica, what can you tell us? Well, Wolf, after days of speculation and some intrigue here, we have learned from the Department of Justice Inspector General via a letter that they sent to Congress that, yes, in fact, this big gap of text messages have in some part been located. Now, you'll never guess how they did it, right? We have the world's largest spying apparatus, the NSA, which is monitoring everybody all the time, probably FBI officials in particular. Of course, the carriers retain this information so it could be subpoenaed from the carriers. Uh, And the FBI has access to forensic resources unparalleled to any other agencies in the world. So they must have used some extremely sophisticated method. So we know that those texts, there was that gap between December 2016 to May 17th, 2017. And of course, Republicans have seized on this, called this into question. But we know in the meantime here, the inspector general, they've been investigating this for several months now. Of course, it's the inspector general who actually even discovered that these texts existed in the first place. So what they've just alerted congressional committees to is that they have have been able to through the devices themselves. Oh, oh, they just went back to the phones and got the text messages. Why do we have the NSA again? As opposed to the storage system that the FBI had through the devices, they have been able to locate some of these text messages. In particular, I'll read for you the portion of the letter where they address this. Wouldn't that suggest that they were intentionally deleted from the FBI system if they were still on the phone but deleted from the archival system on the FBI, which is probably like some sort of 
BlackBerry Enterprise server? That would seem to suggest that was intentional. Able to, through the devices themselves, as opposed to the storage system that the FBI had, through the devices, they have been able to locate some of these text messages. In particular, I'll read for you the portion of the letter where they address this. It says that the OIG has been investigating this matter and this week succeeded in using forensic tools to recover text messages. Hey, can I see your phone for Okay, let's see. Mm, okay. Uh, all right, I just got to select this. All right, forward. Okay, thanks. Thanks. That's what did you do? What did you what did you just do? Oh, uh, I used my forensics tools to an- analyze your phone and recover the text messages that were just sitting there. Succeeded in using forensic tools to recover text messages from FBI devices, including text messages between Mr. Strzok, the FBI agent, and Ms. Page. She was the FBI attorney or is the FBI attorney that were sent or received between December 14th, 2016 and May 17th. 2017. But what they go on to say in this letter is that while they have recovered some of these text messages, they have not recovered all of them. That's something that the inspector general's office continues to do. Yeah, the ones with naked pics, they had to delete uh, off the phone completely. I mean, come on, right? Come on, you got you got your dick on there. Yeah, and they go, well, look, we didn't we didn't violate FISA, so uh, don't worry about these text messages. I mean, we're going to keep looking for them, but uh, but really, we didn't do anything wrong. We promise. That's actually literally their statement. Uh, well, maybe not literally, but it's essentially – that's what I should say. It's essentially their statement. I, I don't know what to make of that story. I mean, did you see this coming in the – I mean this Russia investigation is, isn't, isn't just, is just all over the place. And the inspector general's known about this for months. So this has been in the works, but it just never stops. And now Trump is supposedly getting ready to be investigated by Mueller. Uh, I just this – this thing is getting – it's just not ending. It, I, I wondered how the hell they're going to keep it going until 2018. And it's got, it just shows no signs of stopping. They've really done a successful job of keeping this thing going. I'm pretty damn impressed. It's just really remarkable. It's just, speaking of Russia, uh, there is a bit of self-realization happening on CNN's airwaves. I just thought when we do our Russia update this week, I want to play this moment, a moment of realization on CNN that perhaps we're talking about Russia a little bit too much because nobody cares. And I think that that what's going to be so interesting to watch this year, one of the things that I'm most excited talking to voters about is you are starting to see that uneasiness about the economy sort of dissipate. Remember, even in 2016, mm-hmm. when we went out to these swing states and talked to voters, there was still this fear that things were, were suddenly going to turn down again. You don't feel that as much anymore. This is this is they don't want to hear this. This is this is the C, uh, political analysis that CNN has on and they don't want to hear this. She's telling them when we go out and I'm going to back it up just a little bit. When we go out, this is uh, I think I think it's Maeve Reston. When we go out there and talk to people, they're feeling better about the economy than we were than they were a year ago. And talk to voters. There was still this fear that things were, were suddenly going to turn down again. You don't feel that as much anymore. And I'm so interested to see how the Russia investigation affects things, because so far out in these districts, when you talk to people about Russia and that's all we talk about at CNN. They- <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. This is such a great point. I mean, so she says when we go and talk to voters about the Russia stuff. So interested to see how the Russia investigation affects things because so far out in these districts, when you talk to people about Russia, and that's all we talk about at CNN, basically, <laughs> uh, they say they don't care. It doesn't have any effect on their lives. So why are we talking about it so much? Yeah, exactly. That's I think that's that's why I'm, I'm not totally convinced the strategy works. I'm not totally convinced, but we'll see. They've definitely managed to keep the heat up. They've managed to keep it going into 2018, full steam ahead. And uh, that's farther than I thought they'd get it. 
We'll keep watching it. We have some more on all of that in the overtime, specifically the text messages, secret memo, and all of that. But we've got to take a moment here. Mommy needs a joint. Mommy needs a joint. It's time for the high note. We will do the mail sack next week because Chase isn't here. Ergo, the sack isn't here. But uh, thank you to our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. You keep this show going and it means a lot to us. The reason why I'm here, even though I'm not in the best of health, is like the third show I've done today. It's because, you know why? The patrons, really. When I sit there and I think about it, I, 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 I really think that the, the, the biggest problem we have in online media is the way advertising works. And it's something I've been talking about more and more with people and it's something I'm getting even more passionate about. I am concerned about Patreon saturation and fatigue. Like there's too many people that are supporting too many creators. We've been asking for too long. People that, you know, are like the product, either like it enough to support us or they've decided they're not going to and it just sort of – it flatlines after a while. But it's – it is so much more – it is so much more important for a show like this. But I think all media would benefit if people – if the people that are consuming the content would be on board for supporting the content, a direct relationship, no middleman like an advertiser. That means that the creator's goals are directly aligned with the audience's goals, not the middleman's goals, not what's going to make the sponsor happy or get the most return for the sponsor. It's what's going to make the patrons happy. And I think that gives the audience a fundamental trust in the hosts because you know what our priorities are. Our priorities are making our patrons happy. And that means if we get something wrong, it's not a bias that's influencing that. It's just a mistake. And we have every incentive to correct the mistake, to continue on a story that might not grab a lot of clicks but is still something that's worth following. All of that makes it a unique product. And we could use your support. Patreon.com slash unfilter. We do have another goal we're trying to get to. Man, I'd love to get there before the, before the halfway mark of the year. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Let's continue on to the high note. Vermont has some good news. Starting July 1st, things are going to get crazy. Starting in July, recreational marijuana will be legal for adults in Vermont. The governor says he had mixed emotions as he signed the bill today. That is the most politician statement ever. I had mixed emotions about this, which means the cannabis advocates could say he was excited and the people that are concerned about cannabis legalization could say he was obviously upset. He's a good Christian man. Motions as he signed the bill today. Vermont is the first state to allow recreational use under an act of a state legislature instead of a voter initiative. But the bill does not include any taxation system, although lawmakers are expected to pass one later. That is interesting, isn't it? That uh, it was an act of state legislature and not the vote. That, that, that was unique. Of course, probably not too surprising because everybody wants to have money. Dan, there's a lot of people who want to start businesses, and today state employees were in town to answer their questions. Um, basically came out to check out the licensing workshop and see what's going on with state licensing. The ballroom at the Marriott Monterey was taken over by the cannabis industry Monday. We're going to have the manufacturing folks here from public health. The Bureau is here to talk about retail licenses and distribution, micro-businesses, uh, testing labs, that sort of thing. So we've got all the agencies sort of covered to give people the whole perspective on the on the cannabis licensing in our state. Yeah, it's a. I mean, think about that for a moment. It is a huge range of jabs, the, the, the micro-businesses and all of that. It's not just the growers and the sellers. The longest line was for the Cal Cannabis Cultivation booth. 
I am putting together information for our counties and for our different supervisors to show them that we are responsible growers there in, in Big Sur. Odine Gorton with Big Sur Farmers Association wants the county to change its rules and allow for outdoor cultivation. Um, the county is being the real stick in the mud over who they're allowing to, especially those small family grows um, on the Big Sur coast, which honestly is where it all started. Big Sur growers are hoping information collected at the workshop will help them to shape future county policy. Yeah, these workshops are all about money, 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 money. Uh, also, kind of a funny thing, that gal that was chalking there at the end, uh, Crystal Grease, <laughs> their lower third uh, from the uh, Channel 8 News is Crystal Grease grew up in Georgia. <laughs> oh, no, Gordon. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why they put where she grew up in her lower third, not what her job is, but <laughs> it's kind of funny. And then um, speaking of funny, this was the funniest cannabis story. I- I'm surprised we don't hear of this more, actually. An abandoned church as a dispensary. I think it's brilliant. Well, holy smokes. Police shut down what they say was a pot shop posing as a house of worship in Laguna Beach. You see what she did there? Holy smokes. They can't help themselves. Well, holy smokes, police shut down what they say was a pot shop posing as a house of worship in Laguna Beach. Some locals tell CBS 2's Joe Kwan there were some telltale signs the so-called church was a cover-up. My coworker came in telling me, oh, why don't you look down the hall and see the new, this new thing that we got? And I said, what is it? What is it? Louisa Loisidis walked from this drugstore she works at down this hallway toward Glenary Street to find out. Look around and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a dispensary. She says it was obvious from what she saw. A plethora of the vaporizer pens. Just a few strange, maybe like 15 strain, different strains. I think she's a consumer. And what her nose picked up on. You could smell it throughout the whole building. That is the unit right behind me. This building has a mix of businesses and on the third floor, floor, the top one, are apartments. <gasps> no, apartments where they're selling pot? Oh, God, what does the neighborhood come to? We had the tenants say that they smelt burning marijuana. The smell is one of the things that caused someone to call the Laguna Beach PD. The city banned dispensaries. It's always the smell. It's always, isn't it always the smell, guys? Sergeant Jim Coda says on January 12th, investigators arrested someone at the shop who claimed to be a church volunteer. <laughs> he basically said that he was giving marijuana as a sacrament for a church. What was named Divine Church of Gardens. What religious affiliation are we talking about? (laughs) Good question. We still don't know. Cops found more than 20 pounds of sacrament for sale and say some had already been sold, about $3,000 worth. Did they say anything about religion? Not to me. But says there may have been clues in the day and a half the shop was open. People were asking for a church. (laughs) Is there a church then? Um, no, there's not a church in our building. She says now it all makes sense. I'm not a very religious person, but I just think that's kind of low. <laughs> Some might even say sacrilegious. Absolutely. In Laguna Beach, Joe Kwan, CBS2 News. It just seems like it's going to be a thing. Yeah, the, uh, oh yeah, it's the house of cannabis. The house of cannabis. <laughs> All right, well, I hope you enjoyed the meat and potatoes of your unfiltered show 266. The official part of the show wraps up right here. We're all done with everything you got to know. But if you got time for additional context and more clips, well, then go just actually go nowhere. Stay right where you're at. The overtime's coming up. I was about to say, although I, I probably should have mentioned this, you know, maybe an hour ago. Um, I guess 43 minutes ago. There is a live stream recorded every single week that YouTube doesn't pull us down, even if you can't make it live. And I would love to have you join us live at jblive.tv. 
live times posted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. But if you can't make it, life gets busy, I do try to post the entire live stream at patreon.com slash unfilter, free for everybody. Free for everybody. Free for everybody. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you for being here. Go give me a follow on the Twitter if you would, at Chris Les. Give the birthday boy, at Nunes, a shout out for his birthday, at Nunes. Happy birthday, Chase! It's pretty exciting. Send us your feedback, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And if you're in Club 33, get your sack submission ready for next week. We'll be back with the sack and all of those goodies. If you're not sticking around for the overtime, then I'll see you right back here next week. Say goodbye, Levi! Hey, Levi, say goodbye! Goodbye! change that bat channel the show's not over yet it's just getting started in some regards because it's time for the overtime brought to you by our patrons patreon.com slash unfilter Thank you to our new patrons this week. Six new patrons. I figured I had a good shot when I was pissing off the YouTubers last week that we'd probably pick up some patrons. Love you guys. God bless you. But thank you to our six new subs. Kevin K, Lindsay K, Tina C, Galen M, Thomas, with no last name, and Joe G. You are our new patrons. This episode is brought to you by those six new patrons, and this overtime segment is dedicated to them. And all of our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you, everybody, for supporting us. Thank you. Thank you for reclaiming your time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> reclaiming my time. Oh, man. <laughs> there, there's some good stuff in the Discord right now. I love it. Let's get into uh, the overtime, and uh, let's get into the Oh Nancy segment, my favorite place to start. I like to document how the leader of the Democratic Party makes herself presentable. I mean, she's been around for a long time, and it's clearly because she is a well-distinguished, respectable character who speaks clearly and never gets down into the muck of things. Speaker Ryan was at the podium about an hour ago and picked off a number of states that are running really low on chip funding. That's right. He said that the House was still going to be plowing ahead with its plans mm-hmm. and this continued resolution. I'm just wondering, what's your message for these families? That- so we're not even through this guy's question. She's already making a bunch of weird mouth noises. That are in these states that are running low on chip funding. What's your message to these families that are running low on chip As I said to you, this is a. This is like giving you a um, um, bowl of doggy dew. Put a cherry on top and call it a chocolate sundae. What? What? Hold on! Hold on! What do we have here? This is like giving you a um, um, bowl of doggy dew. Put a cherry on top and call it a chocolate sundae. Wow! This is nothing. Oh! This is that you know the chip. It, this chip should have been done uh, in September, first of all. She is fired up. So this is why the clear – she's the leader. She's a clear speaker, right? Really sells the party. 
sometimes it's their own words that seems to really sort of sink that corporatist class of the Democrats. Uh, it's sort of like this. Uh, someone goes into your house, takes your wife and children hostage, and then says, let's negotiate over the price of your house. You know, we could do the same thing on immigration. We, could, we believe strongly in immigration reform. We could say we're shutting down the government. We're not going to raise the debt ceiling until you pass immigration but, reform. It would be governmental chaos. I certainly hope there is not a government shutdown. Government shutdown would be a disaster for this country. Shame on any of us. We sit here and say, okay, we're going to let it run out for the sake of politics and shut the government down. None of us should be sitting there. None of us even should be representing the good states that we represent, such as West Virginia and Colorado and Arkansas, if we allow that to happen. There's no sense for that to happen. We're shutting down the government if DACA, if a DACA compromise doesn't happen. I, I, Chuck, I hope it doesn't come to that. I think that uh, politicians but it is worth in it. Washington... It is potentially worth it. We, we, it should not come to that. We should stop <laughs> shutting this government down. Senator Durbin, are Democrats willing... You get the idea. So it's one of these situations where they like to put this front out is that they're a very well-coordinated party, but it just didn't get executed very well. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, love, it. I love the big buildup about how bad it is, how bad a shutdown is, and then we end up, we end up in a shutdown. And the only thing that makes the shutdown so bad is the fact that we all complain about how bad it is. You know, I, I read that book by Michael Wolff, um, Fire and Fury. We talked about it here on the show. I was struggling to try to figure out how the hell Michael Wolff got into the White House. And it seemed like maybe via implication it was like through Steve Bannon or something. And this interview makes that a lot more clear. If Michael Wolff is to be believed, uh, he got through Trump himself. Trump brought him in because Trump thought he was on his side. The media does not need defending by the media, certainly. <laughs> okay. um, you, you know, and, and so far the media is, uh, uh, I mean, the New York Times front page looks like it's 1938 in Germany every day. No, um, it does not. Um, Give me a break. The New Yorker is, as I say, has, has, has left all of its standards behind and now become, um, uh, uh, you, you know, an opinion vehicle. Now, if you're thinking maybe Michael Wolf sounds a little different there, like his opinions are a little uh, different than they are in more recent interviews, that was from February of 2017 when he was still sort of smoothing relations over and getting in and getting access. That was Fire and Fury author and veteran journalist Michael Wolf defending the Trump administration there from the media in a TV appearance last February. Today, in a behind-the-scenes look at a behind-the-scenes book and how it came about, Bloomberg's Jennifer Jacobs writes that Wolf's foray into the West Wing started when President Trump himself called Wolf to compliment him on that appearance. Uh Wolf's unflattering portrait of President Trump and his staff and his West Wing and the resulting book led the president's lawyers to threaten legal action against the publishers and resulted in a dramatic falling out between President Trump and Steve Bannon. For more, we welcome the aforementioned Jennifer Jacobs to... They toss it in there, but the implication is that this book and or Steve or uh, Michael Wolf is sort of the impetus for for the falling out between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Our broadcast, formerly chief politics reporter at the Des Moines Register. She covered the 2016 presidential election as a national political reporter at Bloomberg Politics. She happens to be a terrific follow on Twitter, and she is these days White House reporter for Bloomberg News. Great to have you here on the broadcast. And is the allegation, I know Michael Wolff has rankled uh, Maggie Haberman and other journalists in his travels uh, through the years, is the allegation that he he was painting himself as a water carrier for Donald Trump to gain whatever access he could for the book. 
Well, we know that he told White House aides that the working title of the book was The Great Transition, and they considered that to be um, a, a signal that he was going to be sympathetic to the Trump administration and to their points of view. He told them flat out, I would like to counter the vicious media narrative, and I would like to portray uh, the president in a different way. So White House aides told me some of them felt like he did mislead them a little bit. But there were other factors that also granted Michael Wolff access to this this White House as well. And what were some of those? There were so many things. I had to make a list. I mean, it was it was the flattering. It was the, the flattering book title, but it was also a White House that was prone to backbiting. Uh, so he was able to get people to dish about each other. Uh, he played up his relationship with Trump. So he would go around telling people, I've known for Trump for a long time. He likes my work. He considers me the best. So he's a liar. And, you know, that was one of the criticisms is that and it, when he went around to different interviews, he was sort of he would sort of play up to that interviewee a bit. And in the past, he said completely different, opposite political things. It always seemed to be he had um, whatever flavor of the week he needed to get the access he needed. So he really played that up. Um, AIDS, I was also told AIDS thought that someone else wanted them to speak with Wolf. There was some confusion about whether the White House officially thought this was a good idea or not. Um, I was told that um, one of uh, uh, Trump's closest aides, Hope Hicks, told um, some of the aides, listen, if, if you think that you can spin this in a, a positive way, if you can add to the, a positive media narrative uh, about the, the administration, feel free and talk to this, this person as long as you can make it positive. They thought they could control it. You see, and that's the whole thing. It's like, oh, this guy's on our side and we can use him. It's right out of House of Cards. It really is. It's actually a storyline out of House of Cards. It's pretty remarkable. Moving on, let's talk more about those missing FBI texts. This clip goes into some additional details. 50,000 text messages over a two-year period. The Justice Department's internal watchdog, the Inspector General, is now investigating whether the missing records can be recovered and whether their disappearance was deliberate. Of course we need a second special counsel oh. to get to the bottom of uh, to, to get to the bottom of all this and answer. There it is again, the push for a special counsel again. For the many questions we have. Congressional Republicans are calling out the FBI after learning five months of text messages between two key bureau officials in the Clinton email and Russia investigations are missing. The text messages between FBI agent Peter Strzok and his then-mistress FBI lawyer Lisa Page range from December 2016, one month after President Trump's election, to May when and then FBI Director James Comey was fired, and Special Counsel Robert Mueller took over the Russia case. According to this letter from Senator Ron Johnson, who chairs the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee, the FBI blamed a technical problem for the Bureau's failure to capture and preserve the records. People either need to be uh, terminated or prosecuted because they may say they've lost these things, but I don't think Verizon or AT&T or any of the other phone companies have lost those records. The nearly 400 pages of text provided to Congress suggest then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch knew the FBI would recommend against prosecution before Hillary Clinton's July 2nd, 2016 FBI interview what? about mishandling classified information. No. The fix was in? Four days after Lynch met with Bill Clinton on an Arizona tarmac where they claimed to discuss grandchildren, and one day before Hillary Clinton's FBI interview, on July 1st, 2016, Strzok tells Page, timing looks like hell, will appear to be choreographed. Yeah. Page agreed and later replied, it's a real profiling courage since she knows no charges will be brought. She's talking, of course, about Lynch. The texts appear to undercut Comey's July 2016 claim that he acted alone when recommending against criminal charges. I have not coordinated this statement or reviewed it in any way uh -huh. with the Department of Justice or any other part of the government. 
In a separate development over the weekend, the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence, Judiciary and Oversight Committees met behind closed doors to discuss the next steps for the four-page memo that alleges government surveillance abuses during the 2016 election. A senior Democrat says the memo omits key details and the findings are exaggerated, Brett. Just doing the math here, 50,000 texts over two years, that averages out to 68 and a half texts per day. Mm-hmm. 68 and a half. 68. This is in a crucial time period. Look, that five-month window really covers some of the big events. And one lawmaker said to me today, if Strzok and Page had the so-called insurance policy, this is when there would be evidence that it was implemented in some way. After the president was elected, during the transition when he's briefed on the dossier, Flynn's interview by Strzok as part of the Russia case, then the firing of Comey and the appointment of the special counsel. I mean, these are the big pillars of this investigation. Now, I want to go more into one of those text messages there where they mentioned the insurance policy. And more breaking news. The Justice Department tonight. Actually, hold on. That's, I think, a clip out of order. Although I do want to play that clip, too. Um, let's just actually skip to it. So there is more. De- I do have more details. You know what I'll do is I'll bump it to the live version. So if you're watching the live version of the show, I'll try to throw it in there. But I do actually want to keep moving to uh, more on the secret society stuff. The Justice Department tonight warning the House Intelligence Committee, Chairman Devin Nunes, that it would be, quote, reckless for him to release his controversial memo before they review it. Nunes is alleging FBI abuses of surveillance laws in his memo. The Department of Justice is concerned about classified information in the memo. Jim Schuto is out front. And Jim, look, this letter is very harsh. It uses the word reckless. What exactly is the Department of Justice saying? They're saying send Chase Nunes more tweets, apparently. I got to tell you, Aaron, it's it's an extremely stern rebuke of the Republican chairman of the House uh, Intelligence Committee by the Republican-run Department of Justice, of course, run by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, an appointee of the president, saying, and, and, and let's listen to this language here, we believe it would be extraordinarily reckless for the committee to disclose such information publicly, it says, without consulting the department and the FBI, without giving them an opportunity to review the memorandum, to address the risk of harm to national security, uh, going right to a national security issue here and ongoing investigations. It goes on to challenge Devin Nunes, in effect, for his evidence here. It says in the letter, we assume that the House Intelligence Committee members want to provide evidence of any specific allegation of misconduct. It goes on to say, though, we are currently unaware of any wrongdoing to the FISA process. So going after with this memo, not just the question of releasing it, but also the underlying allegation here, which you alluded to, Aaron, it, it, it is saying, and you hear this not just from Devin Nunes, but you hear it on Fox News, you hear it from the president at times, saying that the Department of Justice, the FBI, misused the FISA, FISA process to uh, surveil a Trump or Trump campaign aides during the election, in effect, they say, in an effort to undermine him, to, to keep him <coughs> from winning that election, which is a remarkable allegation to make uh, w- without evidence here. And it's remarkable to hear the Department of Justice attempt to knock that down. Right. And Jim, just to be clear, uh, the Republican Department of Justice and also uh, was it, it was Stephen Boyd, a uh, Trump appointee. Right? Why do they have to point that out twice? Right. Who was uh, the... the signed the letter, right? Exactly. He's the assistant attorney general who assigned it. And of course, his boss, the attorney general himself, uh, Jeff Sessions, also a Trump Trump appointee and a longtime Trump surrogate during the campaign. 
I like how that's the controversy. Not the, not the memo, not what could be in the memo or the fact that the Justice Department is trying to stop them, but it's because the Justice Department has Republicans in it. <laughs> um, okay. This is – okay. Axios is out with a new report that cites three unnamed sources who say FBI Director Christopher Wray threatened to resign after pressure from Attorney General Jeff Sessions – to fire FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. According to Axios, Sessions told White House Counsel Don McGahn about how upset Ray was about the supposed pressure on him to fire McCabe. A source familiar with the situation told Axios that White House Counsel McGahn told Sessions this issue wasn't worth losing the FBI director over. NBC News could not confirm the Axios report. A White House response called Ray a true man of character and the right choice to clean up the FBI's leadership, but it did not address the allegation. Stating in part, President Trump believes politically motivated senior leaders, including former Director Comey and others he empowered, have tainted the agency's reputation for unbiased pursuit of justice. Joining us now is the reporter behind the story, national political reporter for Axios, Jonathan Swan. Jonathan. Axios is making a lot of big headlines recently, um, and uh, I'll leave you to watch the rest of that clip if you're curious, because I want to shift gears to the Vegas shooter. There's been a lot of interesting things coming out about the Vegas shooter in bits and pieces recently that hasn't really come out in one big report. I do have one update, but the bits that I don't have updates on are even more intriguing. I bet you'll remember when we covered the Vegas shooting, we initially covered the laptop and supposedly that the hard drives were missing from the laptop, which I thought was strange since the laptop was in the hotel room with Stephen Paddock and he would have had to have given the hard drives to somebody to take them because the hard drives weren't in the room. That was a very odd aspect of the story. We remember this pretty clearly. Well, now not only are the laptops in the hard drives in the new story update, but they apparently contain child porn on them, which uh, that's a pretty big shift from the hard drives were missing to the hard drives were in there and had child porn. There's also some documents that reveal that he had emails back and forth, potentially, they say, with himself, potentially with another person. I don't know why they would suspect he's emailing himself, and they say they're still going to look into this, so whatever all this means. But in these emails... He's basically saying, come down and take a look at our gun selection. We have lots of great guns. And he's talking about uh, some of the modifications to the guns. And uh, he sounds an awful lot like an arms dealer. This is, and this has been released uh, in, um, in documents recently. So here's an update. Here is some audio that I do have. Major developments in the investigation after the massacre in Las Vegas, the largest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. We have never before seen images from inside that hotel room and what the girlfriend has now revealed. Here's ABC's Clayton Sandell tonight. Tonight, those new images from inside a hotel room turn sniper's nest. A staggering number of rifles strewn on countertops, chairs, beds, the floor, hundreds of shell casings, and a hammer next to glass from the shattered window where Stephen Paddock opened fire. Targeting a crowded Vegas music festival below, murdering 58 people, injuring more than 700. For more than three months, authorities have provided few details about the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. Today, the sheriff released a report he calls preliminary. I've lost a lot of sleep over this. But after chasing nearly 2,000 leads since October, the gunman's motive is still a mystery, though police say he acted alone. He had lost a significant amount of his monetary wealth. 
in close proximity to 1 October, and that may have a driving factor associated with it. The sheriff says he does not expect charges against Paddock's girlfriend, who told investigators he'd become distant and withdrawn over the last year. He was having such a hard time financially, he wired $100,000 to his girlfriend. And began buying more guns. The day before the shooting, the report says the gunman twice drove from the Mandalay Bay to his home, returning with at least six suitcases. When police used explosives to blow open his bullet-riddled hotel room door, Paddock was already dead. He believed that we were in close proximity of engaging him, and he decided to take his own life. Tonight, the sheriff says the FBI still has an ongoing case against someone connected to the shooting, but he is not saying who that is yeah. or why. Yeah, and they're also not saying why the girlfriend isn't more of a suspect when more information's come out about her involvement, including helping him load ammo and prepare the weapons, which seems like a big deal. That would make her a material witness. Speaking of big deals, apparently Turkey's invaded Syria, everybody. Turkey has invaded Syria with the goal of beating back U.S. allied Kurdish militias. RT correspondent Anya Parnpil is with us tonight for the... Process that for a moment, okay? Turkey is going into Syria to fight our guys. Turkey has invaded Syria with the goal of beating back U.S. allied Kurdish militias. That can't be going over well. RT correspondent Anya Parnpil is with us tonight for the breakdown of this. It seems like President Erdogan is pretty determined on this. Absolutely, Ed. The latest front to open in this conflict highlights just how many foreign actors are involved in what some have referred to as a Syrian civil war. Yeah. At least nine people, including six civilians, were killed as a result of Turkish airstrikes conducted on Saturday. According to Turkey's prime minister, the assault dubbed Operation Olive Branch consists of Turkish troops, warplanes, artillery, and tanks offering support to Syrian rebels for hire, known as the Syrian Free Syrian Army. The FSA was previously backed by the United States with the goal of ousting the Assad government, but now finds themselves employed by Turkey to fight another U.S.-backed militia, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. One of our previously backed forces has now been rehired by Turkey to go after one of our other forces that we back. Turkish forces reportedly captured several villages in the Syrian region of Afrin over the weekend. Their goal is to oust Kurdish forces known as the YPG, or People's Protection Units, because it's seen as a, an extension of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which Turkey considers to be a terrorist organization. While President Donald Trump ended U.S. support for so-called moderate rebels early on in his presidency, including the Free Syrian Army, he continues U.S. support for the Kurds. That's despite November reports, according to Turkey's foreign minister, that Trump promised Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan he was ending that policy. Yeah, and that's just the Pentagon's funding. That doesn't even, that doesn't, they're not even talking about the CIA's funding. Um, this, though, is a fascinating development. What a cluster. And um, I suppose if we're not backing them anymore, we may not care much. But wow, Turkey cares. Turkey cares because they share a border with Syria. So they care quite a bit. Um, and they're just rehiring the group. It's like, a, it's like, I don't know what to make of that. Like, <laughs> what, do you, what do you, it's like these guys were just hanging out after having a long, nice paying gig by the U.S. And like, oh, well, now we need a new job. And so Turkey comes knocking. I, I don't even, I don't even with that. 
Uh, let's keep going. Uh, there's much more to cover in the overtime sync if you want to grab that if you're a certain level of supporter. But I wanted to I wanted to wrap up with one of the funniest things in the news this week. If you really if you think about where we are at right now in 2018. And to me, this seems like it could be a warning sign, perhaps a red flag. Way too much of real world shit is because happening or gets changed by Twitter. Now, as an example, Donald Trump on Twitter calls Kim Jong fat and essentially begins the process of peace. By calling Kim Jong-fat, being mean, being the tough guy on Twitter, little rocket man. I, 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 don't, I don't – and now – here's – okay. Well, you don't – that's not enough for you. You don't – okay. All right. Here's another example. Remember that, remember that missile threat in Hawaii? Part of the reason that the missile threat wasn't um, dialed down faster, part of the reason why they weren't given notice, they couldn't get the word out faster – is because the governor says he lost his Twitter password. Hawaii's governor is now admitting to why it took so long to alert people about that false missile alert a few weeks ago. Are you processing this? Think about what that means here, guys. I mean, come on, this is hilarious. This means that so much in our world happens now because of effing Twitter. Hawaii's governor is now admitting to why it took so long to alert people about that false missile alert a few weeks ago. So the governor says when the state pushed out that ballistic missile alert, it took him just two minutes to realize that it was a mistake. However, he wanted to let people know it was a false alarm on Twitter and he couldn't do so because he couldn't remember his password. Ended up taking him 15 minutes to relay the news on social media and another 38 minutes for Hawaii's emergency management agency to send out a second message confirming the false alarm. Officials have said an employee... It just was one password away from... Let- you know, it turns out my dad was down there when that was going on. I had no idea. Anyways, thank you for joining me. I hope you have a great week. Sorry about the delay. I got my arse kicked, but I crawled out of my hole. I got back here. Hope you enjoyed 266, and we'll see you right back here for episode 267 next week. Happy birthday, buddy! Malware and t-